everyone. This is a Sound Health radio show with Richard Talk to Me Guy and Sherry Edwards. Sherry Edwards, as we know, as I say every week now, is at work at the soundhealthportal.com. Actually, I believe right now she's at a conference in Virginia speaking about bioacoustics and sound health. And also working, I'm certain because she's always working on the Sound Health Portal, always improving it. And you can find out more about the Sound Health Portal by going to soundhealthportal.com. And then to get an example of how the Sound Health Portal works and what you can do with it, you can scroll down to campaigns and then see what the current campaigns are. Campaigns are services that you can try out for free. And some of the ones that, uh, well, one of my favorites, of course, is neuroplasticity, looking at all the action that's happening in the brain and seeing how things are firing or why something might be missed, which is true of all of the programs, whether it be bio-diet or fibromyalgia or corona conflict. It's all going to be looking at your vocal print. You're going to do, the, if you choose a campaign, and if you choose uh, to do a free workup, which is one of the campaigns, You'll sign up for a free account, just your email address so they can send you the report, and you'll choose your campaign. The system will walk you through doing two 30 to 40 second recordings directly from your computer, and you will submit those with the campaign that you want to see reviewed bio diet, PTSD, fibromyalgia. There's a lot of information there. And you'll submit that report or that recording, and within two to, I think the most I've ever waited is 10 hours, uh, you will receive a report in the email with all sorts of information about what might be hyper, hypertonistic, meaning too much, or hypotonistic, not enough. And it shows the points in your vocal profile where you have a, an elevation or a low point, because you're always sort of striving toward the medium area which shows balance and how everything interacts or fires or how the methylation cascade is working. And you'll get a great report back that I would suggest sitting down and having a cup of tea and reviewing. And or if you have a healthcare practitioner that is open to that kind of information, they can, uh, you can take it to them and review that with them. And if you're interested, then you can go back and go to soundhealthoptions.com and you can go to classes and you can scroll down to portal presentations and you can see live demonstrations, online demonstrations of Sherry doing a workup with somebody about uh, whatever they're working on. And there's the Sound Health Portal now is quite amazing with its ability with Sherry is coming up with ways to display the information visually so that you can see a, char a chart, like a, let's say a pie chart, where you can see something like, there's the thing we want to work on right now that's the most dominant thing, can, thing that you want to look at in your vocal profile or vocal print to see what the state is like. What's that? Because sometimes you fix one thing and other things begin to fall into place to get back into balance. And so you can see demonstrations of that at soundhealthops.com. Now, in order to hear a replay of this show, which I know with Dr. Goldhaber's decades of information and experience and warnings, that this is a show you're going to want to re-listen or share with friends. And you can go to soundhealthoptimist.com, 
click on the radio tab and then click on Sound Health Radio. And down there will be the flyer for today's show, as well as links at the top now. We have links for both Stitcher and for Pocket Cast at the top, and pretty soon some of the other podcast aggregators and podcast apps. My personal favorite is Pocket Cast because it has a lot of really great features, and one of them is the, the ability to share a show. So if you go to, let's say, Stitcher, and you go to Stitcher and you search for either Sound Health Radio or Talk to Me Guy, you'll find the shows there. And I don't think they carry all 700, but they carry the most recent several hundred. And you'll be able to go find the show within about 30 minutes to an hour at the most with podcast, whatever podcast app you use, whether on iOS, it's, I believe, called Podcasts. And in the Android world, the default app is called Google Podcasts. And you can search for, as they say, Talk to Me Guy or Sherry Edwards at any of those, and you'll find this show at the top. And you'll be able to listen to it and or share it with friends. And there's a lot of really great information in Dr. Goldhaber's thinking and warnings and thoughts. He's been in this world of health in some way uh, for a really long time. Not just health, but I mean in many areas. But really in many ways I related to health. But then again, I relate most everything to health. So with that... Over the past 42 years, Dr. Gerald M. Goldhaber has emerged as the nation's leading safety warnings and communication expert. He's the publisher of the Goldhaber Warnings Report, now in its 11th year reaching over 10,000 lawyers nationally. His clients have included over 100 of the top 500 corporations in the U.S., 50 of the top law firms, as well as government agencies. Dr. Goldhaber's 11th book, Murder, Inc., How Unregulated Industry Kills or Injures Thousands of Americans Every Year and What You Can Do About It, released in March of 2020. Dr. Goldhaber has appeared on national TV, given international keynote addresses, and frequently gives depositions for court cases nationwide. Born in Brooklyn, Massachusetts, Today, he lives in in a New York high-rise apartment building. In his spare time, he trains for a triathlon, volunteers at the synagogue, and spends time with his son and daughter. Dr. Goldhaber joins us to talk about how unregulated industry kills or injures thousands of Americans every year and what you can do about it. Murder, Inc. Welcome, Dr. Goldhaber. Glad to be with you. Good morning, everybody. All right. Everybody, please take a deep breath. <laughs> We're diving in. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing thing to see. Um, I will immediately tell people that you can go to the murderinkbook.com to find information about the book. It really seems like a mob book. I don't mean that. It just it has such a great title. It's such an amazing title for the world of what you're speaking to. I just I love the title so much. I just love telling people this past week that I'm going to be vending the gentleman who wrote Murder Inc. book, and they're like, "Is it about the mob?" Kind of, kind of, in a certain interesting way. Well, uh, Richard, it's definitely about the mob. 
not the mafia, not the Cosinotra, although the tactics are almost the same, but it's about the corporate mob and their government uh, facilitators that are running America and are causing personal injury and death to many of us around the United States and have been for decades. So, yes, uh, i give you a quick example without getting too much into the weeds. Let's say you and I decided to knock off your partner. Sherry is her name. Let's say we wanted to knock her off. But we're not very good criminals. We uh, we try to we figure out she drives a car. Let's put her gas pedal down to the floor and tape it, so that she can't get the gas pedal up while she's driving the car. And she eventually it keeps going faster and faster. She loses control and crashes into a tree, and she dies. We're not very good crooks, though you and I. So we left our fingerprints everywhere, and we got caught. And uh, let's say you're in California, and I'm in New York. There's no death penalty, I don't believe, in either state. So we get life in jail without parole because it was premeditated. We decided to do it on purpose. All right, now you say, well, gee, what's that got to do with Murder, Inc., your book? Everything. Instead of making you and I the perpetrators of the crime, let's change the name from Jerry Goldhaber and Richard Olson. Let's change the names to Toyota, Toyota Mm. Corporation. And they did exactly that. They had a gas pedal two years ago that would go down on the floor. Imagine you're driving your car. You push your foot on the gas pedal to accelerate. Maybe you want to go over the Golden Gate Bridge out in California. And all of a sudden, you can't stop the gas pedal from coming up. And eventually it accelerates, and you lose control, and you die. Now, in this case, Toyota didn't get the death penalty. They didn't get life in jail. In fact, they didn't get one day in jail. What did they get? They got the government to say to them, write a check for a billion dollars. You've been a bad boy, and now go back about your business. Boy, that's justice. That's why I called the book Murder, Inc., because it might as well be the mob with the murder they're getting away with in killing Americans. And by the way, thousands of Americans were either killed or seriously injured by the Toyota problem. And I call it a problem as a euphemism. It was a disaster. But you can multiply that by a 1,000 every year. There's at least that many uh, corporate activities that I call on the verge of criminal activities that if you or I had engaged in any of these activities, we'd be locked up, and deservedly so. Well, the one that sticks in, I'm aware of that one. I don't know why, but really the the exploding gas tank Pinto really sticks in my brain as one of the big ones where they design it. You have an auto manufacturer who builds a car called the Pinto. If you've ever seen one, you'll never forget what it looks like. And they put the gas tank in such a location in the back that when it has impact, the car explodes. And I suspect it was a similar story there, where eventually they went through court and acted like they felt bad, and maybe they felt bad. But eventually, I believe they wrote a check. Is Let that, me am explain I that. That, uh, that example resonates so well with me, Richard. The uh, Ford Motor Company at the time was run by Lee Iacocca, name in auto industry. Mm. I call it infamy because of his famous quote that I'll get to, safety doesn't sell. And here's what they did. They hoodwinked 
the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. That's the government regulatory agency, NHTSA, that oversees all things cars and trucks. And they asked NHTSA to place a value of human life of a figure, and NHTSA cooperated and came up with the figure $200,000 if we're dead and $67,000 if we're injured. Now, with the Ford Pinto, they had a slight problem with their rear-mounted engines. It has a very bad habit of exploding with lots of flames when they were hitting the rear. Ford compared the cost, get this, to fix this hazard, the exploding gas tank, 11 bucks a car was the cost to fix it. And you'd say, well, that's easy. Fix it, 11 bucks. My life is worth more than 11 bucks. Well, they had 12.5 million Pintos on the road. They multiplied that times 11 bucks a car, came up with almost $140 million, which would have been the uh, benefit of 180. That's the cost to fix it, $140 million. Now, let's compare that to the benefit. Well, they looked to the figures. They said, well, it only cost 180 people died so far. It's a lot more later, but at the time they did this, it was 180. And there were another 180 who were injured. So they took the figures NHTSA had allowed them to use, 200,000 if you're dead and 67,000 injured. They multiplied it times the number of dead and injured. They came up with about 50 million. So they said, wait a minute, we're only going to save 50 million. Forget the fact that it's lives and injuries, but it's going to cost us 140 million. Well, you do the math, they said. We're not going to do it. And rather than express outrage, NHTSA said, okay, makes sense to us. And the rest of the auto industry, the competitors, rather than saying competitive advantage, let's market that Ford is screwing America with, with, with paying little for safety, they said, me too, me too, and they got in line. And that's the model of, uh, that we're working with, the cooperation between a government agency and you mentioned Ford Pinto, which was one of the more egregious ones in the history of folklore of product safety run by a mob called Murder, Inc. <laughs> wow. That really blows my mind that that's – well, we'll talk about that later. I was going to go into regulation, but I want to go someplace else first because it just blows my mind that that was okay. I mean that's a classic scene in a movie. I can't think of the movie – but there are numerous movies where you see the attorneys in the back room talking about, and you have some guy like Iacocca sitting at the desk doing, and somebody's doing the calculations, and it all comes down to exactly what you just said. It'll cost us 11 bucks to fix the car, but look, we only have this many. I mean, it's, it, maybe it's based on this very story. But, I mean, there's a lot of it, whether it's drugs or it's autos, or it's, it's just mind-blowing that that's okay, air quotes. One of my favorites is the food industry, Richard. And in that industry, the biggest culprit of all is the sugar industry. You talk about placing their profits over our safety. They engaged in a game of hide-and-seek for decades. What do I mean? They disguised the use of the word sugar by a number of phrases that you or I could never understand, and they put it on the product label, like dehydrated cane juice, high fructose corn syrup, maltodextrin, I'm not kidding about this one, mannose, another mascavado, panaco. The list goes on. I have 55 terms that the sugar industry used on the food labels, 
and they did it deliberately so that we wouldn't know it had sugar. Now, the FDA, which I consulted with on this label, came up with a law that changed the sugar labeling so that they couldn't hide and seek anymore. A few years ago, they changed it, so now you have to use two words, added sugar. Well, that didn't stop them because they put it, if you look at your labels, the label actually is in Greek. You say, what are you talking about, Goldhaber? It's not in Greek, it's in English. How many of you out there in listening to this show understand the metric system? Well, if you're like the rest of the country, because I did a national study on it, only 5% of America speaks metric, or you might as well say <laughs> speaks Greek, because that's what the labels are. They're in metric, and that's deliberate. So the sugar industry no longer can hide behind all those labels where you didn't even know it was sugar. Now it says added sugar. So what's the total? The total is in grams. Very few of you understand converting grams to what grandma used when she made our cupcakes, and that was to use teaspoons. Well, let's put it into reality now. You drink a Coke a day, all right, one Coke a day. Guess how many grams the average serving of Coca-Cola has? 60, I'll tell you, 65 grams of sugar. Now, you say, well, that sounds like a lot, but I don't really know what that means. And you're right. You don't know what it means. Divide it by four. That's Jerry's secret measurement for the day today. Divide grams by four, and voila, you get teaspoons. So if you divide four into 65, you're going to come up with a little more than 16 teaspoons of sugar. Now, you might not have thought 65 grams was a lot, but I doubt there's anybody out there listening to this who says 16 teaspoons my goodness, if you haven't figured it out yet, have a cup of coffee, as, as uh, Richard said at the beginning. Now, would you put 16 teaspoons of sugar in your coffee? I know you like it sweet, but how sweet. <laughs> now, you say, all right, so what does that all mean, Jerry? Big deal. All right, so I have a lot of sugar in Coke. Well, if you drink one Coke a day, one Coke a day, or any can of sugary drink, I don't want to pick on Coke, Pepsi, the winner is actually Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew has 77 grams of sugar. That's almost 20 teaspoons of sugar in one Mountain Dew serving. So no matter, any sugary drink. So we'll, we'll spread this around, Murder, Inc., to include all of the manufacturers of sugary drinks. If you drink one can a day, just one, you have just increased your chances of having a heart attack by 35%. Now, you're not going to have the heart attack the second you drink the Coke or the Pepsi or the Mountain Dew. But you sure as heck have increased your risk of a heart attack during your life by 35%. And to see how pervasive and evil this industry is and what their impact has been on our lives, right now, every year, 25,000 Americans will die just from drinking soft drinks alone. We have an epidemic in the country of obesity and overweight Americans, 40%. That's almost half the country is overweight or obese, including 20% of our children are obese. Obese, that means 20 pounds or more over what your weight should be. Now, this is incredible. One-third of the United States is right now diabetic or pre-diabetic. And that accounts for 10% of all deaths in America. 
over a quarter of a million deaths a year associated and the leading cause, sugary drinks. It all comes back to the evils of Murder Incorporated. The industry knows this. The industry has the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, approving their products, and they go about their business. So they hid the names of sugar, but they didn't hide the fact that there were large amounts of sugar in the product, and they're going about their way marketing this to all of us, and particularly insidiously in the age of COVID, where uh, three times as many people of color are dying from COVID than white people, these marketing tactics that lead to the pre-existing conditions that people of color are more likely to have than white people in America are directly linked to the marketing tactics of the sugar and food industry who are deliberately targeting communities of color with insidious, directly targeted advertisements pushing these products. And they're drug dealers, in my opinion. And I'll tell you one last statistic. I know I've thrown a lot out at you, but uh, you did tell your audience to breathe deeply before I started. (laughs) Sugar is eight times more addictive than cocaine. I will repeat that. Sugar is eight times more addictive than cocaine. Now do you get the point that I call the industry drug dealers, legalized drug dealers? They're peddling a drug, addicting Americans to uh, sugar, and they're killing us. So that's why how unregulated industry kills or injures thousands of Americans every year. Friends, wake up. These are not your friends. Uh, when they're par- they're peddling and supporting you, and maybe Coca-Cola will sponsor your local church, or you want to switch over to a fatty food product, McDonald's, or one of these fast food companies will sponsor a church picnic or something. They're not your friends; they are enemies. And my book is hopefully trying to get you to open your eyes, think for yourself, and understand that these products that are being marketed by corrupt corporations who have put their profits over your safety are intended to sell products and you are expendable collateral damage, whether you're injured or killed as a result. Take a breath now, everybody. (laughs) A deep breath. Have some whole grain cereal. And one of the things that amazes me Well, there are two things I want to say. There is a gentleman who I always forget his name. I think I have it blacked out in my mind who wrote a book called Sugar, Salt, Fat. Catchy title. And what he was talking about was his work with the fast food industry, whether it be chips, something in a bag, or in general, where you get that perfect crossroads of mix where it hits the taste buds, slightly overstimulating them because you're going, wow, that's amazing. And I don't mean like a perfectly cooked piece of fish with a side of steamed vegetables and maybe a, you know, smashed yam. I'm talking about fast food or chips in a bag or something like that where where his whole book was about how they work to dial that into the perfect combination of everything just to get people to look like want more of that. Not to be satisfied, but to like have to have that bag of chips. Like a dog, you suddenly find your nose in the bottom of the bag of chips and you don't know how you got there because you go into what I would call a hormone cascade of like, whoa, man, that's amazing. I need more of that. And it's, I think, part of exactly what you're talking about with the sugar as an addictive substance 
along with those other things, you get that perfect vortex of sugar, salt, fat, and suddenly, like, how did I eat all that? And then you finish it off with a soda. Exactly. That's Michael Moss's best-selling book, by the way. Okay, thank you. Michael Moss. And it's a, it's a must-read if you're concerned about nutrition and health. It's a very good book, and it's exactly correct. The idea is to addict you to the foods you eat. It's why I call these folks drug dealers. And if you understood the corporate prime directive, if you're fans of Star Trek, you know the prime directive, do no harm, do no harm. Well, the corporate prime directive is the opposite. It's lie, hide, and deny. Companies hide, they deny, they intentionally confuse, or they ignore uh, safety hazards that we and our families need to know before we decide to buy or use a product. One of the prime examples of this, besides sugar, was the tobacco industry. They ran Mm. for decades a campaign, a campaign. By the way, they learned it from the sugar industry. The sugar industry started this kind of a campaign back in the turn of the century. I mean the 19th century, the 20th century. The sugar industry would hire uh, scientists and doctors, put them on their payroll, some even from Harvard, and... uh, concoct these studies that would show in the sugar industry's fall, their studies always came up with the conclusion that the reason Americans are dying is because of fat. Of course, it was a lie. It was sugar. At any rate, the tobacco industry learned from this tactic of putting people in white suits, doctors, their white coats, getting them on TV back in the days when tobacco could advertise, and they'd have doctors that pretended to look like the TV doctor of the day was uh, Dr. Kildur, Kildor or Marcus Welby, MD, and they'd have these doctors on with their stethoscope saying, more doctors smoke cool with their ventilated, you know, <laughs> methylated filters. And, and, wow. and you'd get these doctors downplaying the, uh, the, uh, de- the deadly effects of tobacco. And the, the whole message, the whole message, they spent 30 to 40 years from the 1940s on when they started to addict our soldiers by throwing free cigarettes at them, and even it became a byline, a buzz line in movies. You know, uh, time to take a break, a smoking break. Smoke them if you got them, boys. And this was in a John Wayne military movie. Uh-huh. And this was deliberately done because this, the tobacco industry uh, learned very quickly these 18 to 21 year old soldiers get addicted and smoking in the battle lines they're going to stay customers when they come back after the war was over so we had the worst epidemic of smoking in the history of the united states in the 1950s and into the 60s when over 50 percent of americans were hooked on tobacco well they were hooked on nicotine again it was a drug delivery system the cigarette industry is a drug delivery industry the circular nature of it looks almost like the thing people use when they smoke or whatever they do, snort, I don't do these things, snort cocaine. And it's what a cigarette is. It's a circular item that you just put in your mouth and you inhale a deadly set of chemicals, which if you knew that they contain things like ammonia and methane, there's so many carcinogens in there, it's a real stew. But it didn't matter, the industry, they put the message out, that the jury is still out there. They knew they couldn't get away with saying tobacco isn't bad for you. So what they said was, yeah, there are some doctors who say it is, and there are some who say it isn't. And they'd parade on TV some doctors who weren't even doctors. They were just actors 
who who raised doubts about it and who who would uh, advertise filters and things to make you think it's a safer product. So they were trying to say, is the jury still out? Just like the uh, sugar industry taught them, and they taught them well. So that's what I mean by the corporate prime directive. And uh, you and I have to be really vigilant to avoid falling for these lies. And um, lawsuits aren't going to really save our day because most lawsuits, the public doesn't know this, only 3% go to court. Most of them get settled. They settle because uh, the corporations come up with a price tag to buy our silence. The reason I say this is, that there's a thing called an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. Mm. When you settle a lawsuit, you have to sign a piece of paper with the lawyers on both sides saying, I'm not going to tell anybody about it. Well, guess who that involves not hearing about it? The government regulatory agencies don't get to hear that the product you just settled on a lawsuit about was dangerous, deadly, or harmful to you. And that's where the public doesn't know. This this came to my attention vividly. I was visiting uh, Ralph Nader in his museum of torts out in Connecticut, and he, I was talking about the um, the McDonald's lawsuit from 1992. I don't know if your listeners know about, it, but somebody sued McDonald's. A woman named Stella Liebig. She's an 80-year-old woman sued McDonald's because she was going through the uh, drive-in window with her grandsons. And she was in the passenger side, and he was driving the pickup truck. She got some coffee, and uh, she pulls over, and they pull over into the uh, parking lot so she can add some sugar and, and cream to it. And she had a light Parkinson's problem, so she's shaky, and she spills the coffee in her lap and scalds herself, has third-degree burn. She sues McDonald's, complaining the coffee was too hot. Now, everybody in America kept laughing at her. All the comedians, Jay Leno and David Letterman at the time, were uh-huh. making her poster girl for the stupid lawsuits that are filed in America, silly lawsuits. Turns out, and that was my lawsuit, turns out that was not so stupid. Nobody knew how hot McDonald's coffee was. McDonald's had juiced up the temperature of the coffee 30 degrees hotter than everybody else in the industry. And they did it because their market research told them people complained they wanted the coffee hot when they left the drive-in window and got to work. So they figured out the average time for the average commuter, and they multiplied it times the temperatures and all, and they figured out, we'll raise it 30 degrees. That will satisfy most of our customers in America. Trouble is they didn't tell anybody. That's what I mean by hiding. You want to juice up your temperature 30 degrees. Well, guess what happens when anybody is exposed to slippage from 135-degree temperature coffee, and that's what it was. You automatically will get third-degree burns. Everybody will. Trouble is McDonald's chose not to warn, not to tell anybody. Now, you can't see this, but I'm holding in my hand a McCoffee from McCafe, the McDonald's coffee cup. They have on there the following. It's an orangey-yellow a painted coffee cup with white print. Now, think of that. White print on a pale yellow. That's determining your, that's deciding ahead of time, rigging this thing out, right? You're trying to rig it so no one will see it. You can't call that a conspicuous statement if it's white on yellow. So that's deliberate, right? Hide, obfuscate. And what do the words say, caution, hut? They don't say 
caution or danger. This is 30% hotter than the rest of the world, and you could get third-degree burns if you spill a drop on your lap. They didn't say anything about that because that would scare people away from buying their coffee. So that's, again, an example of hiding and lying. Now, what about this NDA? McDonald's got people, and this is what came out in the lawsuit from Stella Liebig. It turned out that there were over almost a 1,000, I'll use the name Stella, a 1,000 Stellas before the original one. Nobody knew about it. And if the Consumer Product Safety Commission, CPSC, that's what governs McDonald's and other consumer products, as well as the FDA, if they knew about it, they'd have forced McDonald's to take corrective steps. So McDonald's got people to sign non-disclosure agreements, and that way the comedians could make fun of poor Stella and make it out as if she was the only person in the world who scalded herself, and everybody should have known that coffee's hot. Well, they didn't know. McDonald's made it so that nobody would know. And even if they did know, to this day, you don't know how hot is hot because all they tell you is that it's hot. You don't know that it's scalding hot. Well, and one of the things that you talked about in there is that what I call ants on a page. When they're on a product, you go in the gr- – I'm a person who's read reads labels. I've always read labels. I was in the restaurant world for almost 20 years, so I have a whole different thinking. Like, I don't like fast food, never have liked fast food. I don't trust it. There's <laughs> that. I just don't trust it. Good decision. But you have these, when you have these labels, whereas you say they design, it's an orange cup with white print, or it's, 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 they go out of their way to hide the warnings. So they declared, okay, we have to have a warning about something. Sugar, well, probably not sugar. Or let's talk. Let's go back to the fast food industry. I remember when they were starting to disclose, they had to have a sign in the fast food place that everybody just walked by with disclosure about ingredients, and it was ants on a page. It was little tiny print with words that people don't need to want to know, spelling out what the ingredients were, and they made the charts. There must be people getting degrees in how to write these charts. So it's absolutely incomprehensible by regular people, let alone people even with degrees who know how to read this. It's like there's a school where they must teach this. Yes, there is. It my mind that how complicated they can make it. In there fact, Richard, you hit okay. the nail on the head. I call this in my book, Houdini Taught Them Well. Houdini, the <laughs> famous magician, he taught them well. Even the smartest of us as consumers are fooled by the slick advertising campaigns. And even if, as you say, even if their lawyers convince them you've got to put a warning on, they're going to do their best to play hide-and-seek with consumer warnings. Remember, the baseline is that the people putting the warnings on the product, and I'm talking about some of my very own clients, their marketing people look at me as the Grinch who stole their Christmas bonuses because in their (laughs) minds they think any warning is going to kill their sales and thus their profits and their Christmas bonuses. The truth is actually the opposite. Let me give you an example of what I mean by hide-and-seek. Big Pharma didn't get the memo that you and I will respect the truth. And by the way, that's a whole other story about the Bob Woodward book and why the uh, President of the United States tried to hide and play down and still does the COVID virus 
because he thinks he says it'll cause panic. But the point is that when you go back to Big Farmer as an example of the people who didn't get the memo that we do respect the truth, we just want to know what it is so we can take corrective action. All you have to do is turn your TV on anytime you want. You'll find a Big Pharma advertisement asking you to ask your doctor if, and you fill in the blank on the drug, if so-and-so isn't right for you. They are the largest advertiser on television. Two-thirds of TV advertising right now. I'm a CNN analyst, and I'm on CNN a bit here and there, and uh, two-thirds of their advertising comes from Big Pharma as well. You Every minute you'll see a pharma ad, several times an hour, whatever channel you look at. Now, here's what's interesting. The FDA, Food and Drug Administration, they tell you that if you're going to advertise to the public, because they used to just advertise to doctors, and then you and I couldn't sue them because they called it fancy language. They called it the learned intermediary doctrine. The person in the middle between the pharma company and you, the user of the drug, was the doctor. So you could sue your doctor, but you couldn't sue pharma because pharma told the doctor what the risks were. Well, the government put a stop to all the uh, phony ways that uh, pharma was telling. They were hiring doctors to give speeches to other doctors. They call them shills in a poker game, right? Well, that stopped. So now in order to keep peddling their products, big pharma goes directly to you and me. Well, in order to go directly to you and me through TV ads and radio ads and so on, they have to give up their right to, to the learned intermediary doctrine as a defense in a lawsuit. So that means that you and I now can sue them for failure to warn directly because they've been advertising directly to us. Well, that didn't stop them. So the FDA, who's in bed with them, says to the big pharma companies, remember, boys, if you're going to put an ad on TV, you've got to have some of the warnings on they said, no problem, boss. So they go on TV. Now, here's the gig. You put the ads on, what happens? In all of these ads, pick your drug. It doesn't matter if you're Mara or some other drug. You pick the drug, and what are you going to see? Happy, healthy, sexy, beautiful women and men throwing footballs in the park with beautiful babies and the puppy, you know, Fido's running alongside of them, grandma and grandpa are bouncing in the Ferris wheels and all this of life. And all of the t- same time you see these beautiful images, you hear the guy say, and oh, by the way, this drug could kill you and it'll kill all your friends and your little dog too, Toto. So the, the point is, why do you see these beautiful images? I'll answer it. Television is a visual medium. It's about the pictures. It's not about the words. It's about the images. The big pharma company knows this, and they know it very well. I tested this concept that people will remember warnings if they hear them, but not if they see them, by a study I did. And we looked at 1,000 people. Half of them saw the ads on TV. Half of them heard them on the radio. The ones who heard them on the radio, same ad, same copy, same content, they were more likely to remember warnings than the uh, people who saw it on TV who virtually didn't remember any warnings, which doesn't surprise me. It's called distraction. Houdini taught them well. It's the small print of advertisement. Put the warning on, but disguise it. Hide it. Obfuscate it. Do everything you can to make sure nobody sees it or pays attention to it. And that's deliberate. That's done in virtually any time you see corporate ads run on TV that you have to have a warning. And if you see it in a written advertisement, you'll find the warnings. 
I've got some lawsuits I'm an expert witness on right now where they buried the language of the warnings in the middle of tiny printed package inserts that nobody reads. And that's deliberate. That's absolutely deliberate. Houdini taught them well. Well, and one of my favorite tricks, favorite in quotes, is the they find the fastest talking person on the planet to say that toss away line for the last 15 seconds that they add where they talk about loose gassy stools. But they say it so fast and at a tone that is sort of flat and runs off. You don't pay attention to it because, as you say, you're seeing puppies and kittens and happy, elder, gray-haired people holding hands in the park thinking, oh, yeah, I'm getting some tonight. You know, or whatever they're alluding to cinematically. But the undertone is murder, death, kill. But said so fast, you don't notice it. Or you're, you're, they're really gaming it so you don't notice it. They're making it the same way, same thing as that piece of paper in the box that you're getting that you just throw away immediately. The whole point of their ad is to hide the safety information under the misguided impression they have, they, Murder, Inc., the corporate mob has, is that safety doesn't sell. Lee Iacocca said it, I mentioned it earlier, and Mm -hmm. he did a disservice to America by saying safety doesn't sell. The truth of the matter is safety does sell. Tell the truth. I call in my book engaging in principled disclosure, a radical, radical step. Tell the truth. Tell us what can go wrong. You and I as consumers will respect the corporation. I don't go into the corporate boardroom and tell them you're a bunch of crooks and you should all go to jail. I go in there and I say, we've all made mistakes in life. It's time to now uh, take a different path and tell the public what can hurt them. Engage in principal disclosure. And don't scream at me, that'll kill your safety, uh, your uh, profits, and your uh, bonuses. I will tell you the opposite. I will tell you that the studies show that sales don't even go down. They go up when you tell the truth. I work with the tampon industry, particularly Playtex, with the hazard of uh, toxic shock syndrome. I put the warnings on the boxes, inside the boxes, around and in. I made them bold and conspicuous. I put them four times on the packaging and bright, bold in colors inside. When you couldn't even, I made them seal the bottom of the box so that you could only open the top of a box of tampons to get to the tampons. And before you could even open a, pull a tampon out, you get to my warning across the top. There's a paper before you can even get inside. You got to read my warning. In other words, it was a really big effort. Playtex and their uh, corporate lawyer, Joel Coleman, who was a real terrific guy, saw this principal disclosure was the path forward. Playtex went on to dominate the tampon market. The public respected the truth. I've seen this time and again. Tell the truth. Engage in principal disclosure. And as the uh, Germans said, the truth will set you free. It surely does. If you tell the truth, people won't run away from your products. They'll flock to them. And I might say that's some advice I would give to the President of the United States. If I could, without getting political, the Warnings Doctor, which is my brand at CNN, it's my brand in my book. I am the Warnings Doctor. And I have some advice to America. A warning 
this is a serious, serious epidemic, pandemic. It isn't going anywhere. It's probably going to get worse before it gets better. We are going into flu season. We are going into winter where people can't be as much outdoors as they are today. Once people go indoors, with few exceptions, ventilation systems will not be adequate to protect against floating viruses in the air we breathe. Therefore, it is only despite all of our efforts of social distance, wearing masks, washing our hands, using hand sanitizer, and so avoiding crowds, all of these are important, useful tactics that the warnings doctor emphasizes and recommends. However, we cannot, cannot be fooled by politicians who bring us messages only intended, like corporations, to increase their profits. And if I will, politicians who are only interested in the next election, their profit is getting reelected. It's not your safety. A corporate murder ink mob gang is trying to kill or injure us to keep profits flowing in the terms of cash. By analogy, politicians putting their future, their profit, their future ahead of our safety are no different than the gang who gave us Murder, Inc. We must, as a people, follow the science, follow the data. The data are telling us that we're going indoors. That's a reality. That's a fact. And when we go indoors, the risk will increase. Thus, we need to take this virus even more seriously. College students are returning. Thousands of them are becoming newly infected. And this shouldn't surprise anyone. I may be old, but I'm not that old that I forget that when I was in my fraternity, the first thing we wanted to do was party. And that's the normal thing 18-year-olds want to do when they get together is socialize. Why should that surprise a college administrator who, in my opinion, any college that opened up, and particularly in states with high infection rates, they were committing the same malpractice that Ford did with the Pinto, that Takata did with its exploding airbags, that the sugar industry did with its products, and so on. We're talking about a mob gang of Murder, Inc., where they're putting young children at risk, not just in colleges, but now in our schools. Opening schools in areas, cities, states, counties, where there are high infection rates is criminal. I'm sorry to be strong, but it's the fact. I live in a world of science, not conspiracy, not profit and greed, but science, fact, and reality. And the reality is this warnings doctor is telling your listeners to please take seriously this virus. It is deadly. If I were writing a warning label, it would be very simple. Danger. COVID-19 will kill you and all of your loved ones unless you take appropriate precautions. We have not turned this corner or any other corner. We are still knee-deep in this pandemic. Thank you. Thank you. And how do we – so this goes back to – there's so many parts here. This is a whole other show. It goes back to the elevated levels of sugar in our world. 
that people consume on a regular basis is sort of a, you know, they go to the fast food place and they order a big something, a double big something or other with a side of goo. As I said, it's not my world. And then they get the uh, Coca-Cola so big or some sort of soda so large you need two hands to carry it. You actually have to hand it to the kid to carry. So they have that as a foundational diet. And then, for some reason, they choose to ignore the warnings about wearing masks. How do we get those worlds to come together to actually pay attention and do simple things like wear a mask, wash your hands, distance? That isn't com- this isn't rocket science. It's not like you have to do some trick special dance. It's very clear. It's very straightforward. And how do we... How do we recontextualize that so people get it? And and something I'm, I'm going to toss this out now. I was going to save it for later, but we're careening in on later. You use a very great phrase. I can't find it now, but you'll know as soon as I allude to it. You talk about my health is your health, and your health is my health. That's right. How do that, we bring that all together so that we really get that we are? A community on the planet. Well, you know, it's no accident, Richard, that the people in Europe and the European Union, and by the way, before any statistician wants to say, well, Germany is smaller than the United States population or England is, collectively, European Union has more people than the United States. So we are allowed to take Europe and compare it to the United States. Developed nations, developed nations, democracies, democracies. And what do we see? In the United States, we see over a 1,000 people dying a day. That's every three days. 9-11 was just two days ago, and I'm very sensitive to that, living here in New York City, not far from ground zero myself. And uh, I have got to tell you, every three days, the United States is experiencing a 9-11 right now with COVID. This is a three-alarm fire. Every three days, we lose 3,000 people, the equivalent approximately to 9-11. And what America has to understand is that why is Europe, when we lose 1,000 a day, why are they losing 5 to 10 people a day? Throughout Europe, 20 people. On a bad day, 25 people. And we're losing 1,000 to 1,500 a day, and it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. And there is no magic bullet vaccine coming before Election Day. Don't believe the politicians on this. So why is Europe working and we're not? Very simple. Two parts. One, their leaders engaged in principled disclosure. They told the truth. They told the truth. Lest you think Donald Trump is Winston Churchill or FDR, he's anything but that. Hmm. FDR and Winston Churchill told the truth. Winston Churchill said, they're coming for us, England, and they are going to kill us unless we fight on the streets and on the sands and so on. And FDR told us the truth. He told us what would happen to America if we didn't mobilize. He told us where, the, where Germany and Japan and, the, and Italy, the Axis, was. They didn't hide the death, death counts and, and the realities of the war. Of course not. They they did have a, a Churchill uh, uh, Roosevelt used his fireside chats because he was hi- not hiding the truth of the Great Depression. 
when he created the, the, the New Deal, he was actually telling them what was wrong. They knew we were starving. And America knows that this is a bad thing. Don't lie to us. So Europe leaders, number one, told the truth. And number two, why are there people following and ours aren't as much? Because they have a collective philosophy of the other. You mentioned the word community. In Europe, my daughter lived in Ukraine before COVID, six months a year. She does work over there. And the whole attitude over there is we, we, us, all of us, together. We don't have that. In the United States, it's more like those corporate greedy clients of mine who engage in my profit over your safety. It's about me, not we. And we in the United States have to be more about we, us, and the other person. Now, to our credit, hopefully this election will change in the uh, fall, but and we see about two-thirds of America buying into the theory that the mask is needed, and hopefully up to 80 to 85% say they're wearing the mask mostly or all the time when they go out of their houses. However, those numbers should be higher. They should be over 90%. And uh, they've been actually dropping recently since uh, uh, certain politicians are running around pretending that this thing isn't real. So we have to get more about we. We have to think that my health is your health, and your health is my health. My mask protects you, and your mask protects me. Hopefully our masks will protect each other, and we can move forward until there really is a vaccine. And that's how we get America on board. And I say this particularly to young people. You may think you're invulnerable. And maybe some of you, if not more of you, will have less serious symptoms than I as an older person will have. But you have a mother and a father and a sister and an uncle and a grandmother and a grandfather. You have older teachers if you're in school. And those folks will can receive your virus. And maybe they won't luck out as much as you and by the way young people are not immune to serious side effects the young the uh, young i'm a boston red sox season ticket holder and our best pitcher eduardo rodriguez who i don't even think is 30 years old got a serious case of covid is now probably going to be through permanently from baseball as a pitcher because he now has a heart condition directly result from covid young people you are not immune from serious side effects well, and one of the things that I'd like to see come out of this, if we can get a, I don't know, this is a weird thing to think coming from this, that a benefit from COVID would be that we do begin to think as community. And the reason that I say that is because I'm such a pro-environment person and I think so much about the environment and what we're doing, particularly as I live in California and we're having amazing amounts of fires, and it's climate-related. And so I really hope that our, I, I envision that one of our takeaways from COVID, once we get through the other side, and I know we can, particularly as if we listen to the words that you just spoke about, the wear a mask, wash your hands, distance. It's okay. Do that. What is the harm? It's such a low cost to comply yes. with these warnings. It doesn't cost. The research I've done over the years, I've published a lot of articles that show if, if the cost is low, compliance is high. It doesn't cost you anything to put a mask on. 
It's not a big deal. Make it a fashion statement. Look at Nancy Pelosi. She's amazing. She matches her masks every day with her with her dresses and her outfits. If you want to make it a game, have contests and who can design. Kids relate to this. It's not high cost to take care of yourself and, more importantly, of other people. And the environment, if we can come out of COVID more community-related. Look, I live in New York City, ground zero. On, on the day after September 12th, I remember vividly how much we all got together, how we all worked for each other, how we were all one big community trying to help one another. Every three days we have a 9-11 in the United States with covid why can't we get back to that spirit instead of screaming into TV cameras, I'm not wearing a mask because I'm a man, a real man. does. I mean, come on. A real man takes care of somebody else. That's what a real man does. A real man says, you know what, I care about you. I care about you as much, if not more, than I care about me. And that's what a real person would do, a real strong person. And that's where hopefully we'll come out of this It'll probably take a year or so before we can say we're almost at the other side. But when we do, I think we have to work together. Because you mentioned the environment, and you know too well there, Richard, with the fires raging where you are. This is the future. This is not a dystopian film. This is reality. Fact check, folks. Climate change is here. It's going to get worse. We need to act as one big community and do everything we can, all of us, to fight this. Oh, there will be no planet left. And some believe it's almost at that point now. Yeah, we're at a very close tipping point. You know, we're teeter-tottering, and the, I'm not sure if it's teeter or totter, is getting heavier and heavier on one end. And as I say, living in the state that's currently had over 300, 3 million acres burned, it's mind-blowing that we can't pay attention to the environment. And that leads to the same thing of getting out of the state of distension, creating space between each other, and realizing we're all in this together. You know, we can't ignore the environment like, that doesn't exist, let's just look at corporate profits and pollute as much as possible because it leads to the bottom line being improved. We have to actually begin to take responsibility and realize we're going to have grandchildren and what kind of planet are they going to have? Are we all mo- Is that why we need to move to Mars? Because we're just destroying this place that we live on now called planet Earth? It, it really does blow my mind that, as I say, I, I hope one of the takeaways from COVID is that, that we re-engage in the idea of community. We really are in this together despite the dissension and the as you say, in the in the poorer communities and in the black communities where COVID is really being devastating. I mean, it's devastating everywhere, but in some communities more predominant. And it's really, I don't really have a closing thought there. Other than well, I, I could it help blowing. you with one point. Thank you. You mentioned the people of color and communities of color. We've had national protests about this, and I hope that one of the things that can come out of COVID, and we've seen people taking to the streets, mostly wearing masks, by the way, and trying to separate. Al Al Sharpton had a march on Washington with half a million people, and not one case of COVID came out of it because it was social responsibility in their protest. And let's hope 
that as we come out of the other side, that we keep this spirit, that we recognize the Band-Aid is off on racism in this country. When we look at the statistics of people of color suffering from COVID, far more, far more than people who are, are white people, we hopefully will, will look at systemic racism in its broadest context, housing, income, wealth, education, health care, and so on, criminal justice. It's not one aspect. It's everything. And hopefully we'll be a better society as we come out of COVID on the other side. Wonderful. Thank you. I'll get off my soapbox. Well, probably not. I'll still be standing on my soapbox, but I'll be calmer about it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Please stay on your soapbox. (laughs) (laughs) I will, thank you. (laughs) I'm a little short, and the soapbox is always handy. And available at the drop of a hat, as my audience well does. (laughs) Um, We're at that amazing – I'm I'm amazed to find that we're here already. Would you please tell people where they can find your book and more about your work and your really great newsletter? It's not always happy. It's not necessarily happy puppies and kittens, but it's really great information. I've really enjoyed reading a backlog of your newsletters. It's a lot of great information there. You Where bet. They Just find uh, the book is available. Murder, Inc. is available wherever you get your books, Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Wherever you get a book, you'll find Murder, Inc. And we're coming out. We have it in Kindle and in paperback and hardback. And uh, actually, it's going to be out in audio book in the next few weeks, too. So if you're Great. an audio book person, you go to Amazon and you'll find the audio book there, too. As far as the uh, uh, newsletter, it's the Goldhaber, Goldhaber, G-O-L-D-H-A-B-E-R, Goldhaber Warnings Report. Just Google it. You'll find it, and then you can uh, subscribe to it when you get online. It's free, and I come out every month with a new edition. I have my own podcast called Exposed, behind the, an exclusive look a confidential and exclusive look behind the curtain of corporate greed, exposed. And every week we have another episode up, and we interview different people. We've been talking to some of the infectious disease experts recently. So that's a little bit of a – I have a YouTube channel as well, uh, Jerry on YouTube, Jerry with a G on YouTube.com. So you can find me pretty much everywhere you look. If you're lucky, once in a while I'm on CNN, although these days it's mostly politics. I try to stay out of that except when it affects the uh, COVID issue, then I get right into it. So that's a little bit about it. And hopefully, uh, uh, and then please let me hear from you readers and listeners. We like to hear as much from you. I'm sure Richard does too. So uh, I'm very accessible. I answer every single email and uh, be happy to hear from my listeners and readers. Great. Thank you very much, Jerry. That was great. Yeah. There's a whole other show in my mind. Uh, We'll get back to all of this. It's an amazing pile of everything that just affects ultimately moving toward, as I say, the community theme is such a theme for me. So I'm really happy to hear about that. Thank you so much. You bet. Take care. And everybody else, have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.